Hey everybody, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. This is Matt. And this is Brad. We are the pastors of Inspire Church in Westfield, Indiana. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening around here, be sure to subscribe to our text updates by texting the keyword INSPIRE. That's N-S-P-I-R-E to 317-451-4111. We hope the following message inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Last week we talked about Gideon. Gideon was a true underdog because he was the one that was called by God to deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites and the Amalekites. Even though he was hiding, he would have been anything but a strong warrior, conquering general, and yet God saw him as an underdog and said, that's somebody I can use. Um, This week I'm particularly excited because I'm going to talk about an underdog that chances are you have probably never heard of. I would say the the number of messages, the number of sermons that have been given on this character in Scripture would be relatively small and insignificant. Part of that has to do with the fact that probably most of you would not know how to pronounce his name if you saw it in Scripture. Let's go ahead and put that on the screen. This is who we're going to talk about this morning. Anybody want to give that one a go? Mephibosheth. How does it just rolls off the tongue, right? Mephibosheth. This is a great, great story. He's kind of one of those lesser known characters in scripture. His story comes out of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And each of these underdogs that we're talking about here as we go has a particular excuse or background story as to why they would be the underdog in the story. Mephibosheth's excuse, if you will, his underdog excuse is, uh, I'm too ashamed. I'm too ashamed. The reason why that's significant is because Mephibosheth's name in the Hebrew means the end of shame. Or more specifically in Hebrew, there's kind of these two Hebrew words that are combined. One that means to cleave, to cut, to put an end to, and uh, sobeth. The last part of his, uh, his name there means shame. So the end of shame, or one who destroys shame. Now, once we know some of his backstory, and once we hear about his story, you'll find that that name is a little bit unique because God oftentimes in Scripture assigns names to individuals that someone has to grow into right? Have you ever seen like a a little kid, right? You know, when they're maybe just in an elementary school and they've got one of these like big adult sounding names, like William or something, and they want to be known by their full name. And you're smiling and you're chuckling when you meet them because it's like, okay, one of these days that name's going to make sense for you. You'll grow into that name. Right now it just sounds weird because it sounds like I'm addressing an adult, even though I'm looking a little kid. Mephibosheth's name was significant because throughout scripture, God has used names to give kind of a little bit of a highlight, a little bit of a preview as to where this story is going to go. For example, we know the story of Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. He was promised by God to be the father of a great nation. And after years and years had gone by, he's getting older and older. God even changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Imagine how how difficult it had to be when someone would meet him and say, what's your name? Oh, my name's Abraham, father of many nations. How many kids do you have? Well, I don't have any yet. God said I would. And you're how old? You're 100, right? 
I, I love names because names give a lot of significant backstory. You know, nowhere are names more significant than within the comic world. And in the comic world, I, I as a geek, right, I, I, love, I love the comic backstory. But if there's anything that we can acknowledge as geeks is that throughout the years, the comic writers, it seems, got kind of lazy when it came to assigning names to characters, because what they would do, it seemed, when they would come up with this character, I don't know how they would have their pitch meetings, but they would assign a character's name based on their powers. I have in my office a framed super omnibus of superpowers where you can actually find throughout the different comics there are all these different superheroes that are connected to their superpowers, and it's quite humorous to look at. For example, one of the characters that you'll find in there is this individual. His name is Arm fall off boy. <laughs> Greetings, Legionnaires. The time has come for you to meet Arm fall off boy. My power will astound you. Observe as I detach my limb. His power, believe it or not, is that his arms come off and then he can beat you with his arm, right? So, not necessarily the best. Or how about this guy? Thin man. His power, yes, you didn't probably read the uh, character or the uh, comic episode, The Brave and the Bold with Batman and Thin Man. His character is kind of like some of the other well-known stretch characters in the comics, except he was kind of first, and he just got the name that described exactly what he did, which is he could get very, very thin. Or this one, talk about spot on the nose here, Matter Eater Lad. What does he do? He eats matter. I love his little bio there that uh, food on Bismol was gradually poisoned by microbes, so inhabitants evolved the ability to eat and digest any substance. Other data, his parents are living, no special girlfriend. Hmm, wonder why that would be. Or uh, this one. Now, you may laugh at this, but I, I have a feeling that this character's superpower would come in handy. Fruit Boy. He has the ability to take any fruit and cause it to ripen immediately. You laugh, but when you bought that pineapple from the grocery store and you're waiting to make that dessert, you would have liked to have called up Fruit Boy to have him ripen it for you immediately. And the last one, this one is just plain fun there. What an unfortunate name. <laughs> this character was created in the, uh, the late 40s. And I have to think that this, like, you know, all the other speed names were taken, like Flash and, and Zoom and the rest here. And so he wound up with the unfortunate name of The Wizard. And on top of that, like, his suit is yellow. So, I mean, if you think you got a bad name, at least you don't have to be known as The Wizard. Backstory, interestingly enough, he was bit by a cobra and had to receive a mongoose blood transfusion, which gave him the speed of a small rodent. Hence his backstory, the wizard. Now, in scripture, of course, there are names that are given, like Mephibosheth, right? One who destroys shame. The thing that's different from scripture to today is that when you and I are given names, Right? There, there may be some kind of etymological backstory to the name as to where it came as far as the, the nation or the country of origin, right? But for the most part, an individual who receives a name would be receiving that name, and you would have to look that up to know what's going on, right? Mephibosheth came from a Hebrew culture, so the individuals who received 
their names, their backstory was part of their name. So when you were introduced to someone, you would have been introduced as a person's name, and then they would have said, oh, your name means one who destroys shame. What is the story behind that? We want to read this story, and we're going to pick this up in 1 Samuel chapter 16, 17, and 18. Before that, let's just back up just a little bit, because we talked about David in week one of this series, right? Matt set the stage how David was an underdog. When God was picking future kings of Israel, he was the last person that they even would have thought would have been a potential king. And yet God saw something in David that David didn't even see himself because he was out in those fields taking care of the sheep, and God said, man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. So David is chosen king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The problem is that Saul was already a king of Israel. You may remember the story of David and Goliath. David is, again, the shepherd boy. Even though he had been called to be king, he was not functioning in the role of king. He is delivering food to his brothers while they are encamped against the Philistines. The biggest, most well-known Philistine was Goliath, who was shouting all these insults. David says, no, you're not going to talk this way. And he stands up for the nation of Israel, kills this giant, right? He instantly becomes someone who is well-known in the nation of Israel. He kills Goliath. And then Saul takes notice of this individual because people start talking about him. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says this. Now, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, who is Saul's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him, and he did not let him return home to his family. Saul was very aware that there was a potential challenger to the throne, And on top of that, what made it especially awkward is his son became best friends with David. And so Saul adopted the mentality of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And he said, I'm going to keep an eye on this guy and I'm going to keep him here in my court. I'm going to make sure that no trouble arises. So David becomes best friends with Jonathan. This is an important part of the story. File that away. But on top of that, he then goes on to marry Saul's daughter, Michael. This is where it starts to get really weird and awkward, right? You think you have in-law problems, but in 1 Samuel, you read that David and his relationship with his in-law was anything but cordial because Saul began to become very jealous of David. It didn't help that in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we read that, that as David would return home, He would be greeted by people, parades of people, who would shout refrains like, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, right? So if you were a jealous, insecure leader, that would not go well with you. And he began to become very jealous of David to the point where he finally had had enough and he tries to kill David. We're told that he threw a spear at him. He missed the first time. He threw it at him again. He missed twice and David took his cue and got out of there. And David's on the run from a king who is trying to kill him. But in the midst of that, his bromance with Jonathan grew even stronger. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, we read, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying this, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. Now, this is a very important thing to say because Jonathan knew who David's enemies were. 
not just the Philistines and those outside the walls, but he knew that his father was a sworn enemy of David. But he said, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. David and Jonathan, extraordinarily close. In the end of 1 Samuel, we find out that in a battle, Saul was out at war with his son Jonathan. They both are killed in battle. David is mourning because of Jonathan. And he's grieving the death of his best friend. That takes us into 2 Samuel. In the beginning of 2 Samuel, we're reading about David mourning the loss of his best friend. In the midst of all this, David is anointed king over Israel. And one of the things that you do in this era, in this time of history, is that when you become king, you recognize that there are always going to be challengers to the throne. And so any good king that ascends to the throne recognizes that you have to act swiftly to eliminate any competition. So it was very common for kings or rulers to eliminate not only potential challengers to the throne, but their entire families. So in the midst of this, here's what we read happened. In 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, there's this little tiny footnote of a verse. So much of a footnote that within the American translation, this verse occurs in parentheses as almost kind of like a, oh, by the way. Because you see, First and Second Samuel are telling the story of the rise of one of the most famous and well-known kings of Israel, David. But there's this little kind of side note, this little footnote. By the way, Jonathan, son of Saul had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. Remember, you hear about a king being eliminated, a new king being chosen. If you were related to the family of the previous king, your life immediately becomes in danger. There's a price on your head. You are a potential challenger to the throne. So what we read in this footnote is this. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and he became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. His name was Mephibosheth. So when he was just five years old, before he even knew about the workings of leadership and the ascent to the throne and all these different things. He's just a kid, a five-year-old, probably doing what five-year-olds are doing. He's playing. His nurse is watching him. He'd grown up in royalty. And all of a sudden, one day, everything changed in the blink of an eye. He doesn't know why, but his nurse picks him up. She's frantic. She's scared. She's packing everything quickly. And she grabs him, and she's running out the door. She's running with such haste that she trips, she falls down some stairs. We don't know what, but she falls, and Mephibosheth falls and breaks both of his legs. He becomes lame, and he can no longer walk. The grandson of the king, who had just died in battle, the son of Jonathan, David's best friend, and his name meant the end of shame. Here's why that's significant, because you see, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, 
uh, that, that lameness or disability within, in, in the Palestinian era there, the early uh, first century and before, that any sort of disability, physical, blindness, otherwise, was looked down upon by individuals. You were seen as being judged. You were seen as being someone who had had some sin. Remember, Jesus, when he was out walking with his disciples, encounters a blind man. His disciples say, this man is blind. Who has sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? Because the assumption was this. If you were blind, if you were lame, if you were deaf, someone had to have done something to earn God's displeasure so that you were judged in that way. There was shame associated with lameness, with disability. You became someone who immediately went, no matter what your station in life, went down to the very bottom. Most blind, lame, deaf individuals within that culture had to survive by begging on the side of the road. That's why even by the time that Jesus is on the scene, you read so many stories of beggars pleading to be healed, pleading for just a scrap of food because they could not be gainfully employed. They couldn't be a a fully functioning member of society. There was shame associated with their lot in life. And Mephibosheth, his name just happened to be the one who ends shame. He grows up carrying the weights of his birthright that he would never be able to live in. He heard stories about the palace that he would probably never be able to see. He had to live his life in hiding because he was a potential challenger to the throne. And everywhere he went, he carried the name of Pivasheth, the ender of shame, the one who ends shame. All the while thinking to himself, my name doesn't fit where I am because I carry nothing but shame. Someone must have done something for me to earn this lot in life. And he would have probably heard stories about his grandfather, Saul, who started out as a wonderful king, but made some horribly misguided decisions. We read in 1 Samuel that some of the things Saul did bore the marks of mental illness or mental instability. He had to live under the weight of that shadow, and he had to live under the shame of who his parents were, specifically who his grandfather was. And he carried shame, all the while being named Mephibosheth, the one who ends shame. You see, shame is something that we can probably all identify with because we all have been at points in our lives, haven't we, where we feel that we don't really have a seat at the table. There are times where we have tried to hide something about ourselves that we are less than proud of. Maybe it's your family of origin. Maybe it's your education or lack thereof. Maybe it's your your work experience or lack thereof. Could be something criminal, something awful in your past. There could be so many skeletons in your closet that you're like, if only anyone knew about this part, this chapter of my life. And so we do what human beings do best. 
we learn how to gloss over, how to keep the skeletons carefully tucked in the closets, to pretend like that part of our life doesn't exist. We do that so well that that mask of shame that we wear, this false version of ourselves, becomes almost a part of our identity. We've grown up embarrassed of our family, embarrassed of the place that we came from, and so we just don't talk about it anymore. We almost effectively write that chapter of our lives out of our story, and we pretend that it didn't happen, that it didn't exist And it's only in our deepest, darkest moments that we come face to face with that part of ourself and the shame begins to seep in. Mephibosheth, the ender of shame, the the one who ends shame. Brene Brown, of course, has written extensively about shame. She says this, she said, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. That our worth or our our belongingness somehow is dependent upon who we are and what we've done. And so that chapter of our life, that part of our story, is a disqualifying factor. And shame is the thing that makes us feel that we don't have or deserve a seat at the table. Shame corrodes, she says, the very part of us that believes that we are capable of of change. Essentially, what shame does is it tells us that everything bad that happens to us happens for a reason, and we deserve it. And then shame tells us that who we are is a result of where we've been, and that's never going to change because we deserve what we're getting. No one can beat ourselves up better than us right? We can be our own worst enemy. And the conversations that take place between our ears can be some of the worst, the darkest, as we succumb to the shame, the guilt that says, this is all you deserve. And worse yet, nothing is ever going to change. But you see, Mephibosheth's story does not end there because in 2 Samuel chapter 9, something happens. Very interesting. David says this. He's into his rule. He's into his leadership of the nation of Israel. And one day he has a thought. David asks, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David remembers his best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, to whom he had sworn a covenant that they would be friends for life. And he's longingly remembering his best friend who died. And he wants to do something to honor the memory of his friend. So he asks the servants, is there anyone left who knew Jonathan? Someone that I can show kindness to and by proxy I could be showing a kindness to Jonathan. It's as if he were here today, something I could do for him if he were here today. Ziba, the servant, answered the king and said, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Again, remember that the names are significant in Scripture. Specifically, the name of this town, Lodabar, 
Lodabar literally means nowhere or nothing. So here is Mephibosheth, the ender of shame, who is living under the guilt and shame of being a cripple from a disposed king's family. And he hides as far away as he can. He goes to this place called nowhere or nothing. It's almost poetic as if he is inflicting upon himself the shame he feels he deserves. He's not ending shame. He's heaping the shame on himself. He is wallowing in it because he thinks this is all he has and all he deserves. Every person who sees him sees a cripple, sees a man who can't walk, who can't be a productive member of society. His head becomes almost permanently downcast as he wears the shame of his identity around him like a cloak. And he lives and he comes from this place called nowhere. If you've ever been in a place in your life where it just feels like you are in the middle of nowhere, like nothing is happening around you, then you have something in common with Mephibosheth. So he's summoned by David. David says, go find him. Go bring him to me. And you can almost picture Mephibosheth as he hears of the summons by the king. Well, my luck has finally run out. I knew this day would come. I knew they would find me eventually. They're going to bring me to the castle. They're going to bring me to the king. And they're going to kill me. And it's just exactly what I deserve. First Samuel chapter 9, though, or 2 Samuel chapter 9. When Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David exclaimed, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David told him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Can you hear in his words the shame that he has been living with his whole life? Why are you even talking to me? I am but a dead dog to you. Just kill me and get it over with. This life has not worked out the way that I planned, so just end it for me. But instead, the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward. So this was Mephibosheth's grandfather's servant, Ziba. He summoned him and he said to him, I've given your master's grandson, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, I've given him everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. What an incredibly beautiful story. For a man who grew up with the name Mephibosheth, the one who ends shame, to have lived his entire life under the dark cloud 
of shame, trying to outrun a past that he saw and was made aware of every single day. Every day when he woke up, his legs were still lame. Every day when he would go to the street corner in Lodabar, in nowhere, and beg and try to stay alive however he could. And he was reminded of the shame of who he was and where he had come from. Yet David remembered his friend Jonathan, calls him in, and amazingly, his name in that moment becomes true. For Mephibosheth received not only all of his father's and grandfather's land and inheritance back, but David said, I'm going to honor you. You're always going to eat at the king's table. Every single day from that day out, Mephibosheth would pull up to the table, would eat alongside of the king and his family, and he had to remember where he had come from. He had to remember that he was a cripple who just days before had been begging on the side of the road in Lodabar in the middle of nowhere. And yet, God said, no, your shame will end and your shame will come to an end. This, this thread of God bringing to an end the shame that we choose to carry is one that we see woven throughout Scripture. There's a New Testament equivalent when we see Mary being chosen by God to give birth to the Messiah. In her song that she sung praising God called the Magnificat, we, we read this in Luke chapter 1, there's this verse where she exclaims or praises God and she says this, she says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and he has taken away my disgrace among the people. Mephibosheth, the ender of shame. Shame no more. I don't know what you carry from your past. I don't know what that skeleton looks like in your closet. I don't know what part of your story you would leave out if you and I were to sit down and have a cup of coffee. But if there's something I know about you, something that we have in common in this human condition, there is something that you wish was not a part of your story. We all have that part of ourselves, that shadow side. We all have those past experiences, whether they were things that we did ourselves or things that were done to us. But we all own these parts of our story that we wish were not there. And most of us have gotten really, really good about hiding those things. Most of us have gotten so good at pretending those things don't exist that it actually becomes a part of our identity. And there's no one that actually may even know you, the real you. Because until we open up that dark part of our story, until we own that chapter of our story, we can't be truly authentic, truly who we are. But one thing that we know that Scripture tells us is that God delights in bringing shame to an end. And you may see yourself in Mephibosheth's story because you may feel like an underdog who doesn't have anything to contribute to society because of whatever it may be in your past. 
or whatever thing you currently own in your present. But here's what I want to leave you with. Here's what I want you to remember. Your story does not have to end in shame. Whatever your story is, it does not have to end in shame. The reason why these stories in Scripture of these underdogs ring so true for us is because the history and the culture and the circumstances have changed. Nobody's being named Mephibosheth today, right? There is no king on the throne that is executing potential rivals. The, the history and the culture has changed. But we see ourselves in the story because we identify with some of those things that those characters went through. And like Mephibosheth, you may feel like you deserve all of the bad things that have happened to you because it's just your luck in life. But your story does not have to end in shame. Like Mephibosheth, like Mary, we can see the end of disgrace, the end of shame, because God says there's nothing in your past there's no dark chapter in your present. There's no skeleton in your closet that excludes you from a seat at the table. You belong at the table exactly as you are. And your past does not have to define you. Your story does not have to end in shame. Can I pray for us? God, we are so thankful for the words of truth, the message of grace that we hear about in Scripture, even from these little-known stories like that of Mephibosheth. We know that there are parts of our life that we just quite honestly wish didn't exist. There's chapters of our story that we would unwrite if we had the ability to do that. But rather than pretend that they don't exist, we're choosing this morning to embrace the grace that is available to us that says that we don't have to live in shame and that our story does not have to end in shame. There's chapters yet to be written, there's a story still to be told, and there is a seat for us at the table. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Westfield area, we'd love to see you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions and more information about our services and family ministries, check out our Facebook page or visit us online at www.inspire.church.